no humidity They fire at our family Our flow will be the remedy Cause water got no enemy Greetings, everyone. This is Manuela Arciniegas, director of the Andrews Family Fund, and you are listening to Out of the Margins. Today, we are blessed to have with us Anna Gennari from the Foster Youth in Action. Hi, Anna. How are you? Hi, good. Thank you. We're so excited that you're here with us. Where are you calling from? Hello. I'm so excited, too. I am calling currently from what is now called St. Louis, Missouri. I also want to name and honor the land that I'm on, the stolen indigenous land of the Kikapoo, the Miami tribal nations as well. I'm also the deputy director of Foster Youth in Action, which I'm super excited about. That's fantastic. I'm excited. I think we first met three years ago, right? Yeah. Beginning of um, our journey and our relationship, learning about your work. There's been some change and transformation. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who is Foster Youth in Action? What do you all do and how you come to this work? Yes, thank you so much. So I always start with our roots and our history when I talk about Foster Youth in Action. So I want to honor that um, FYA or FIA. We were started um, 2008 by an organization called California Youth Connection. And California Youth Connection is one of the oldest and largest foster youth organizing projects in the country. So way back when, it was actually young folks that were a part of California Youth Connection that really had the vision of connecting what they do in California with other organizers and other advocates and other young people across the country. So it was really CYC who led this um, vision of collective movement of young people in care and really doing it in a way of using organizing principles. So that's really our roots. And that's really kind of where we've stayed. Um, Who we are now is we are a national, we went from two groups back in 2008, 2009, to now a network of over 20 groups across the United States and Canada. Our mission is really to engage and empower and mobilize a movement led by young people directly impacted by the child welfare system or foster care. Um, We really do this in a few ways. We really believe that there are lots of different ways to create and manifest change, but we believe that youth organizing or organizing led by young people is a very powerful strategy. So we train organizers across our network. We also have a peer-to-peer learning exchange. So folks are facing maybe different needs across the country, but a lot of times they're the same, but they get to do it in unique and creative ways and then get to talk to each other and share strategies about how they're creating change locally. We also lift up and amplify um, issues that are coming from the grassroots up onto the national scene. We don't necessarily drive a national policy agenda at this current moment, but we want to make sure that those who are driving that agenda are really making sure that it's rooted in the voices of the young people that are in the local groups within our network because they're the ones both first impacted and also just driving the change when that change happens they're the ones who are going to make it happen on the ground that's exactly you know the work of like supporting young people to lead change and so some of our folks listening may not know and that may not be familiar with some of the barriers that young people in care face and i can only imagine how that has played itself out over the course of the last year in the midst of these triple pandemics. Anna, would you be willing to share a little bit about what are the challenges that 
youth in care are facing, what are the issues that they've lifted up as most important to them, and what it's been like over the course of the last year with COVID and, and the uprisings for them. I think I want to say and just name first is that sometimes when we talk about the child welfare system, it is such a unique system in some ways. Sometimes it's insular, it's isolated, it's not something that a lot of people often know about. But a lot of the same systems that are impacting uh, communities or other justice movements are the systems that are impacting young folks in child welfare. So our young people in foster care go to school. Their families are impacted by police violence. Their communities are impacted by immigration. So all of these systems that are also at play are deeply impacting our young folks within the child welfare system as well. These same pipelines, the prison industrial complex is the child welfare industrial complex. They are the same things that are facing young people today. Inside the system, some of the things that also our young, young people face is anti-Blackness, white supremacy within group homes, within foster care placements. I mean, one of the things that I don't want to oversimplify, but I do want to say is that in foster care, it really is sometimes access to the most basic and simple things access to your driver's license, access to your birth certificate, things that maybe someone outside of the system doesn't even have to think about. But sometimes things like your vital documents are completely taken away from you. And so when you age out or you're kicked out of the system with no support, something as simple as having a social security card or having your birth certificate are some of the things that our young people are fighting for right now. There are incredible restrictions on young people in care around doing what we call, it's a crappy name, but it's called normalcy. Uh, basically, you have to have a background check of every single person that you've ever even come in contact with. So having access to your siblings, having access to community programs, having access to just doing basic things like hanging out. A lot of our groups have fought and won to ensure that those barriers, those policies have been removed so young people can have every day, you know, play in sports and do things like that. A lot of folks in our community had said at the beginning of the pandemic that, um, and I don't want to, I hate to quote or paraphrase, but they said several times over, now people know what it's like to be in care. So for them, when things like stay at home orders or the term shelter in place was really triggering for, for a lot of folks in our community, um, there was this common conversation amongst those with lived experience saying like, I've always had to stash my food in, I've always had to do this, or this kind of idea of like the system controlling every single move that I make, um, being completely removed from my family, having no access to, or having that limited access. These were things that they had felt like now the world's going to know what it's like to be in foster care. So I just want to name that. But other things were things that everyone is facing, like cash, making sure young people have um, cash assistance. So that was a fight on the national level that that won and was really incredible is that making sure that stimulus funds went directly to young people. And now what's happening on the local level is they're ensuring that those stimulus funds don't go back to the department, but they actually go directly into the hands of young people. So again, California Youth Connection among uh, several other groups have a campaign called hashtag funds for youth. And that's making sure that that money, that direct cash goes straight to young people without the kind of barriers. A couple of other fights that people have won both locally and federally is ensuring that young people don't age out during the pandemic. 
So while um, some people want to leave the system and that's completely understandable, some young folks are getting a lot of resources at the time. So if to age out right now would mean that you would you'd be completely cut off from the kind of support that you deserve. And so if you age out during the pandemic, you don't have any of those resources. So a lot of states have passed and won to ensure that young people don't age out. There is a lot more. We also have a group in Oregon who took an abolition training actually from Dr. Akin Abioye, who I want to name and lift up through our network, trained our groups, had a deep conversation around abolition. And so then Oregon, they took that information and started working on front end policy. So even though most of their work was for young people aging out of care, they decided to uplift a policy that would prevent targeting of Black families in Oregon in entering care. I mean, it's frightening to think about how much the system that was intended to provide care has in fact made young people, Black and Brown and Indigenous families like targets by either presenting barriers to like the cash assistance that people desperately needed during COVID, et cetera. So I really appreciate you sharing some of the great work that folks have won and you even lifting up this idea of abolition and what does abolition mean for the child welfare system? Could you say just a little bit more about that? Yes, I feel deeply inspired and excited is that this year we were really called to think about dreaming and and we changed, we had a national convening three-day convening and we asked, I think there was like 150 young people who shared their vision for um, the conference was called Our Vision, Our Future. And it was really um, centered around what do you want to see? And abolition was a primary vehicle for change, really, that young folks identified as a strategy for getting the vision that they wanted to achieve. I think that was the beautiful part of the convening was that it wasn't so much that we had the academic phrasing around what we meant by abolition, but what we knew was that there needed to be a completely different way of supporting communal care. And that what is, I think you really named it, Manuela, is that this system that was, it was actually never designed to provide care, right? Because in a lot of ways, what we do is we have a history of the foster care training that we often provide. And when you really look at the historical roots of the foster care system, it was always a system designed to control and to separate and sever families. And so if that was at the roots, which is what young people were seeing and naming in the convening, then the vision was saying, well, then we need to rethink this. Like, this is all over, you know, like we need to rethink and radically reimagine how do we care for each other? How do we ensure that families have what they need so that the system in and of itself doesn't necessarily need to be there. And I think that another thing that we did in a lot of ways is we talked about how in this statistic, only something like 10 to 13% of nationally of young people who are in care are there for severe physical or sexual abuse. Yet the primary media mechanism for the child welfare machine is that there's no other option in most of these cases. And it's really like, we, we were like, we have to debunk this, right? It's like if 90% of the young people of families are facing this separation for what could be totally prevented through housing or healthcare or support or even just our childcare or again, reframing even how we take care of community might look different. And so those are the kinds of things I think our groups we're talking about or trying to keep unpacking, thinking of what is divest and invest and dismantle and rebuild. Those have actually been named values as, as a part of our structure. 
That's fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that vision. Yeah. And you know, I, I remember when we first met, there were, you all would convene young people. You'd go out to the Capitol and they would um, lift up their voices and share their policy visions for, for elected officials and connect with each other and receive training. Like, Tell me a little bit more about um, the types of supports and development and training you're providing to foster youth. And, and what are some of the other things that you're really, really proud that FIA has been able to accomplish? Yes, I was just talking about our training and saying, I actually feel very proud of that. <laughs> Sometimes it's not the easy part of the work is to talk about the, like these like technical capacity building stuff, but um, that is the area that I feel deeply proud of. And the reason why isn't because I think we're absolutely fantastic is that I think our training and our leadership development for young people, because it is rooted in our values of organizing, it is rooted in base building versus individual advocates. That to me is what I'm proud of. I'm proud that our value is in lifting up the base and the next generation of organizers. And that really a lot of our supports for our organizers is teaching is really a train the trainers model. It's always knowing that they aren't necessarily being trained to just tell their story or just pass the bill. They're being trained to be organizers so that they can then facilitate a larger and more broader in-depth like campaign in their communities. So some of the things more tangibly that we offer is we have a foster power curriculum. We actually have a curriculum that was co-designed and developed with young people with lived experience and care, as well as SOUL, the School of Unity and Liberation. So Foster Youth in Action, SOUL, and California Youth Connection came together three years ago because we wanted to ensure there was a organizing curriculum. There was a pathway, an easy way, free and could be freely distributed that young people could take and run with. And it has collective storytelling. It has that history of the foster care system. It has a uh, campaign 101. So just nuts and bolts on how to um, develop a campaign as well as leadership and base building. And so that is one real tangible tool that we're able to offer our groups, but we also train that. We had a fellowship where representatives from member groups are uh, a part of uh, an annual fellowship where they're trained in the curriculum. And then instead of it just being, you know, one of the powerful tools is that they are actually representatives of their groups, they can go back and actually train folks in their community and then lift up those issues. Um, as far as the capital goes, that was a part of um, our effort again to really amplify those national issues. And so what we had done is that is similar sort of a fellowship type activity called Leaders United is that young people identified a survey. They created a survey and every year they would survey our base. And I think we had 1500 uh, people each year who young people with lived experience who would name their priority issues. And then what we did was we would hold some kind of direct action on the federal level. So that year that I met you, we were holding a rally on the Supreme Court steps. One powerful thing that I would say about that is that three years in a row, the number one priority that was lifted up was sibling connections. But what was interesting is that sibling connection is already a federal, there's already federal legislation passed. And so what was important was no one was talking, like no one was talking about sibling connections at all, but FIO was able to actually put it back onto the national scene and say, even though there isn't a federal policy that needs to change, what on the local level needs to change? And four of our groups in a row, boom, 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 each year pass sibling rights legislation locally as a result of lifting them up nationally. 
it's kind of a flip-flop on the whole federal advocacy thing because it already passed. You know, that just kind of lifts up the important need of organizing and directly impacted young people and uh, folks who live the work day to day to point out that legislation doesn't mean change unless it's implemented. And usually organizing is what's gonna ensure that folks are really living the change. That's fantastic. Can you talk a little bit, Anna, about what is FIRE hoping to achieve over the next couple of years and what has changed for you all in the context of COVID? So first of all, kudos to you all for holding all of that healing justice space for young people. Um, would love to hear a little bit of what was happening in that space and why did healing justice come up as like a priority? And then also what's your vision for the work over the next couple of years? Thank you for naming that. Uh, yeah, the healing justice and restorative work. So that was actually, I should have said when you said, what are the impacts on COVID? I will say next to um the cash, direct cash assistance and immediate needs, the second highest need identified was connection and was healing. And so we were able to thank you to those other organizations who were able to really lift up that work. And then in our community, we had these community forums that we were holding just to hear and hold space for people. What did people want? What we heard was healing. So um, we had kind of a two approach, actually. One was that we heard a lot of like a healing of healers. So those folks that were also in staff or not kind of more organizational support roles, we heard them saying without being able to say that they too needed to center their healing. And I think it was hard for them at the time. And so we um, instituted a series of restorative circles just for folks that were sort of staff or supportive role. And the reason being is that their wellness was important to ensuring that they were going to support the wellness of the young folks that they were working on. And if we took them out of that and, and didn't see them also, it wasn't going to work. And then the second area was we started these Sunday restorative healing spaces. And, and I also want to name foster care alumni uh, of America because they helped start it in the beginning and, um, and the Center for the Study of Social Policy. But it was just a space to hang out. Sometimes we talk about anime. I have lived experience in the juvenile justice system. It was really a space led by and for anyone with lived experience in either the juvenile justice side or the foster care side. And the great is we started facilitating with like yoga or whatever, but what our group wanted was just to talk and to have an unscripted, unfacilitated time. And we've had the same core group for almost a year. We were all crying like last Sunday because we had just built this community with each other, like every Sunday that just gets to download, decompress, talk. And because we felt like we had done it, instituted as like a part of now what we do going forward, we didn't have to be so responsive to everything. We were already there. The space was already held because it felt we didn't want, I mean, it was okay to be reactive. We got to like be reactive if we need to, but it was just nice to know that it was always there. So that work um, has been powerful, powerful. You know what I mean? <laughs> and you know what, when you talk about what does community care look like, what is infrastructure, right? Having a dedicated space, people who are invested in authentic relationship, no agenda having, but have the muscle and the dedicated room to like grapple in real time when things come up, like that's infrastructure, right? Entering healing and relationships and agency, like that is really, really powerful. And you all made that space available to other foster youth. And so I just shout out to you all for holding down foster youth and, and yeah. 
holding down, holding yourselves down each other, right? Yes, no, it's great. And we were able to dedicate funds so that actually as the group kind of evolved, we noticed that there were some, a couple of young people who really identified wanting to lead it and wanting to feel like they wanted to grow their skills and other members also supported them in doing that. So it was like a really cool way that I think everyone knew they wanted to move into that role. And we also were able to be like, great, let's pay you. You know, we need to pay you. If it, I'm getting paid, we're going to make sure we pay you. And it's not going to be just small things. Like we actually were able to also shift our line items to ensure that they were paid as consultants should be paid a nonprofit wage. And so that's been really exciting too, is that we knew that we're not a direct service agency, so we can't meet all of the needs that came up in COVID, but it was in the healing, we were able to identify more needs and then actually be able to support that cash. So we were able to provide an economic opportunity, even though it's not necessarily say like, we're not a direct service organization. And I love it. I mean, and anyone's welcome if they're listening and they have experience in care, because it is one of my, our favorite things. And to answer that second part about like where we're going, that is one thing I would say is that yeah, not making healing be something secondary or healing be like healing being like used in the way that we actually move and do the work. I think that is a huge uh, shift for us. In a way, it's always been our value, but it hasn't always been our infrastructure. So I think that's going to be going forward. But our biggest piece of work this year will be moving from a member-based organization to a member-led organization. So this is where I'm very excited for Foster Youth in Action because for a long time, it's only been myself and an interim executive director or an executive director. And I think our values are great, but what we needed was our members to lead. And we haven't had that. It's always been, we're kind of a node of resources. We're kind of an opportunity or a hub, but this is really shifting from um, staff to a more collective power model. So we will have a core group of members. We'll actually have paid leadership opportunities, really thinking intentionally, even if that means, which it will mean shifting my role as a leader, right? So what does it look like for me to shift and name my power dynamics? And how do we change foster youth in action so that our structure reflects the values that we're actually trying to talk about on the ground and support local groups? You know, stay tuned for that. It's going to be a long... <laughs> A little bit of a process, but we've developed a strategic planning task force, which is representative of young people. It's all young people. They are really driving the change. They this year have worked with all of our groups to identify a collective vision, a collective set of values, um, a collective structure, and also a set of activities so that we can do that more of that nationwide work that we've been wanting to do, as well as continue to support that local on the ground work. And it won't just be led by me. So next podcast, I hope it's like, I'm not even here, you know what I mean? Which is great. I think that's supposed to be what it's supposed to be. So that's what I'm excited for. That's beautiful. And celebrating growth, right? I heard this evolution on the horizon when we first met, and it's beautiful to see it in real time shifting and happening. And so that's fantastic in terms of how organizations change their approaches and really respond to what young people and communities are saying and, and transferring power directly into their hands. So congratulations for that beautiful growth. As we're wrapping up, and I was just wondering, what would you like to share with the listening audience around what you're hoping that we all can manifest collectively for and with foster youth? What do you want funders to hear? What do you want nonprofits to hear and rally around? I'm sure I'm going to miss something, but I, I think the first thing that I thought to my mind is don't forget about young people. <laughs> 
Yeah, don't forget, not about us as in foster youth in action, but don't forget about young people in child welfare. I think also something that is starting to unfold a little bit more, what I said in the beginning is that young people in the child welfare system are also young people deeply impacted by white supremacy, are also young people deeply impacted by education justice. They're also young people deeply impacted by state-sanctioned violence, their families as well. And so let's keep thinking and talking together in our justice spaces about the impact. I want to keep, I don't have the answers for that, but I just want to keep the door open for let's keep that intersection working together. And then for funders, what I love and what I just want to say much gratitude uh, to you all is the funding for organizing and the capacity and not to forget about capacity, especially organizations that are moving to be led by those directly impacted is that it is critical that that capacity gets funded, that there is enough, that we're not set up to fail, that as we shift power into the hands of those directly impacted, that they have the leadership development and the capacity building supports and services. And that takes time and that takes funding. And it takes that kind of intentional support to see it all the way through. Awesome. Any yeah. words for young people in care for the leaders? Yeah, you're not alone. That's all of you. you. We're here. We have your back. You're not alone. We're with you. We see you. We love you. Yeah, we're gonna, we're here fighting with you. Talk about fire. Love. That's right. Yes. And thank you so much for this opportunity. Like, this is so great. I know you're super busy and you're moving so many things. So we're so grateful to you. If people want to get keep in touch with fire, support, donate, where should they go? They can go to our website fosteryouthaction.org. They can go to our backslash donate. They can see our work. They can also have access to all of our social media via our website or our Instagram at FY Action. We're really proud of our Instagram right now. <laughs> I'm an Instagram fan. So FY Action, we'll see you on the social media handles. Thanks so much, Anna, for making time. Thanks, Mumala. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to Out of the Margins with Foster Youth in Action, Anna Janeri, and your host, Manuel Arciniegas. Thanks for listening. construction and i reckon ball the beat if you down for liberation then i reckon we should meet slavery was not abolished just polished and put in prisons and the new jim crow word up to the resistance